A few quick trigger warnings before we get started on this episode. Even though the conversation is still light and friendly, I want to give you a heads up that there is potential for religious trauma with this episode, as well as brief mentions of sexual assault and child abuse. If you're sensitive to these subjects, maybe skip this episode, take a break, and I will see you next week. From WBNE. Hello and welcome to episode 154, all about queer and back again, being the 154th part of That's What I'm Talking About. My name is Mary Clay. If that's too complicated for you, just call me MC. I've been experiencing the world of J.R.R. Tolkien for the first time, and right now I'm reading The Silmarillion, so you don't have to. Except today we are not reading The Silmarillion because I nearly had a breakdown trying to read last week's chapter. So we are taking a break and also celebrating Pride Month. Um, So to do that, joining me again is Reverend Tom Emanuel. Thank you for coming back. Hey, MC. Glad to be back. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this was something that has been um, this this lecture series that you did, Queer and Back Again, was something that was on my radar. I think you were doing it back in January, maybe even, and earlier this year. And it was on my radar, and I kept being like, oh, I need to like tune in to one of the evenings. And then, of course, life gets in the way. So... I'm I'm really glad that you're we're able to to sit down and and for you to share this with my audience and for people to hear this who maybe also, you know, life got in the way for them and they couldn't attend your series. So, um yeah, listeners, this is probably going to be the first time that you hear more of the guest's voice than my voice. So, <laughs> um, first, let's let's just jump in and tell me what what is what is a overview of this series. So, yes, earlier this year, I taught a uh, gave a lecture series entitled "Queer and Back Again: The Gospel According to J.R.R. Tolkien." which was a exploration of uh, Tolkien's work and particularly the way we can think about spirituality or religion or theology in his work from a progressive perspective. Uh, The reverend in front of my name gives it away, but in addition to being a Tolkien scholar, I'm also a minister in the progressive United Church of Christ. And Tolkien is... Uh, at least, well, I'm not going to say that exactly. Tolkien is, is certainly the, one of the most important books in my life. I was a Tolkien fan long before I was a Christian and way, way before I ever thought of becoming a minister. And I wanted to put this series together for a couple of reasons. One of them was that I had recently been accepted to a PhD program, actually, to write about Tolkien and theology at the University of Glasgow. And I was also still working as a minister at the time and thought it would be fun to fuse my upcoming PhD program with my work in ministry. So there was a self-interested piece there of, you know, making double work. I can research Tolkien, I can teach this class, I can get paid for this even as I'm starting on this PhD. So that was definitely part of the inspiration. But the other part, and the bigger part, was that 
Over the last couple years, I have become more involved with Tolkien fandom than I ever had been earlier in life. I've been a lifelong lover of Tolkien's work. Uh, my dad read The Hobbit to me when I was too little to remember, and I read The Lord of the Rings to myself for the first time when I was 10 years old, followed immediately by The Silmarillion, born forward on the enthusiasm of youth. I cheers to you for making your way through it. I think you just did the the, the map of Beleriand. Is that oh correct? Oh my god. Truly awful. Like I've read a lot of like I'm not I'm not some like 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 I was in, you know, AP English in high school and I took a lot of different like literature courses in college. I've read um if this means anything to anyone listening, I've read Michel Foucault who is like one of the most notorious like philo- like communication philosophers and this broke me. The realms of Beleriand is what broke me. So yeah, I and I had some people in the Discord server too saying like, well, maybe it's okay to take a break from the Silmarillion and and dive into other things. So yes, you are so true, so accurate. Um, I I have a question for you though. How what was it in the past couple of years, or how did you start getting into more facets of the fandom and experiencing that? Well, it mostly comes from having gotten a Twitter account finally. I was a late adopter. Yeah. Uh, I got a Twitter account in 2020. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but there was a global pandemic and we were all stuck what? at home. Right, I know. I must have missed it. I wished I had. So <laughs> we were all stuck at home and I was looking for ways to engage more with with political folks who might share my opinions, with uh, other fellow writers, and, of course, with with Tolkien fans. And so I found my way into what I lovingly call gay Tolkien Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a wonderful place, isn't it? It's a, it is a wonderful place. And the cool thing about it is that although I am uh, bisexual myself, although I have dear family members and tons of friends who are queer, trans... Uh, kind of the whole rainbow of LGBTQ+. I had never really thought about reading Tolkien from from a queer perspective. I had, it had never really occurred to me. I mean, I sort of knew that you you know people had had called like Sam and Frodo gay when I was in high school or when I was in you know middle school when I first read these books, but I'd never thought about reading them from that perspective. Let alone you know writing fan fiction or drawing fan art. Sure. And these kind of this wo- amazing world of of fan creations and interpretations. And it really opened my eyes into looking at the text as something that didn't just have the meanings that I brought to it, but that could mean all sorts of different things to different kinds of people. It really blew open my sense of what was an acceptable uh, hermeneutic, is the word we'd use in, in theology, like what was an acceptable reading strategy, right? And I loved it. I loved it. I loved getting to encounter all these uh, diverse ways of, of reading and thinking about and loving the world of Tolkien. But the more time I spent in the fandom, the more I began to notice that there are uh, there's a reaction to those kinds mm-hmm. of readings, right? That for every beautiful piece of uh, queer fan art, there is a troll in some corner of the internet who is going to crawl out of the woodwork and, and tell you, don't you know that Tolkien was Catholic? Oh my gosh. If I my my response to that, I had um an Instagram reel about 
Sam and Frodo's, you know, potential romantic relationship um, go like go viral and all these comments just be, yeah, Tolkien was Roman Catholic. I don't think he would approve of this. And my response to that was, well, I'm not Roman Catholic and I am reading this. And if I want to interpret it in this way, then I can and I will because it's about, you know, how individual readers are able to interpret and find meaning from things. At least that's that's always how I view pieces of fiction. So, yeah, just that one comment absolutely grinds my gears. <laughs> yeah, well, it grinds my gears, too, especially as somebody who's coming in as a theologian and is really used to comments like that Uh in, in, in Christian circles, right? This is, we have battles in, in my denomination. Well, not so much my denomination, but certainly over the last 20, 30, 40 years, the question of can queer people belong in the church mm-hmm. are, is queerness somehow sinful inherently? It, spoiler alert, it's not. Um, <laughs> but, but this is a constant battle. I mean, you see this playing out on, on the cultural sphere right now, these absolutely atrocious laws in in texas and florida and elsewhere and the the language around grooming and the idea that exposing Mm. young people to different ways of of gender identity or different ways of sexual orientation is somehow destructive um somehow setting them up to be uh to be, you know, sexually molested. Well, let me tell you, if you don't want kids to be sexually molested, you might consider not taking them to church because uh, it yeah. happens a lot, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. Not to, like, get too too deep into this, but I grew up in the Catholic church and my mm. mother is still very Catholic and definitely, like, a lot of, you know, revelations about the Catholic church in the past, you know, decade or so have just really, like, um, the... I don't know, veil is removed from my eyes, so to speak, you know, and so just, yeah, dreadfully awful things. And so it's just even more worse to hear, yeah, all these people say such terrible things when we're just trying to share different ways of being and loving and accepting other people. And and in my view that there's, you know, no short, there can be no shortage of of love and openness in the world, and so why would we not embrace that? You know, you, those unique qualities of other people. Yeah. Amen. So when I looked into the Tolkien fandom and saw these kinds of interpretive battles taking place, it reminded me a lot of what I'd already seen in in Christianity. In fact, from the the rhetoric used to the arguments deployed. Uh, it felt a lot like arguments over, well, does the Bible actually say that there's something wrong with homosexuality? Is that how we understand it? Isn't isn't love uh, for our neighbor more important than these handful of verses that would seem to suggest some, you know, some right biblical writers discomfort with uh, with male uh, same gender relationships? So. All of which is to say, I wanted to take a look at Tolkien using the same kind of. Uh, reading strategies and, and theological works and, and interpretive ideas that we use in progressive Christianity to make sense of the Bible, to make sense of the history of Christianity, and to say, actually, it's not just that that queerness is, is not a sin. Like, it's not a sin, but it, more than that, it's an expression, for us at least, of, of how God makes incredible diversity and incredible beauty in the world. And it's something to be celebrated. And you can find it in in the texts of the Bible and in the tradition. 
And I thought, well, you know, I think if we read Tolkien from a similar perspective, we could pro I think the text supports queer readings. And I think that even if Tolkien, the Roman Catholic, wouldn't have approved of homosexuality, which we could get into a whole conversation about that and whether, right. it, whether yeah. it matters. I mean, I think your observation is correct. It's like, well, at some level, it's unimportant what Tolkien thought about politics because I'm not Tolkien. He was born in 1892. And also uh, his work... You don't have to take Tolkien's, Tolkien's politics on board in order to appreciate and love and interpret his stories. And that's mm -hmm. part of what makes them so powerful, actually, is that they're not just dependent on what the author thought about such and such a social issue. They, they speak to people now where we are, right? So, so this series was really an attempt to kind of look at Tolkien through this lens and to dig into the texts, not just the Lord, primarily the Lord of the Rings, but also the Silmarillion and the Hobbit and some of Tolkien's uh, other writings, like on fairy stories or his poem Mythopoeia um, and various other materials associated with, uh, with his writings and, and with Middle Earth, and to try to offer a perspective where people could not simply, uh, you know, enjoy their reading, their queer readings of Tolkien, but say, look, here's how the text supports this. Here's actually how the story itself is kind of queer, even if it's even if it's amb ambiguous, even if it's not explicitly stated, it's there's an, there's incredible queer theming throughout Tolkien's work, and so I really wanted an opportunity to to explore that more and to maybe offer some of those reflections to readers who might find it helpful in their own making sense of of Tolkien's world. That's all. That's that's really awesome. Yeah. Um, what was the reception like when you announced that you were doing this series and throughout the series? I mean, I'm sure it was a mixture of you know some backlash from other people, but. Um, what was it like once you were actually doing the series and what were you hearing from people? The response was, I'm happy to say, pretty overwhelmingly positive. Oh, great. Great. When I put it out there, I sort of thought that maybe, you know, a handful of folks from the congregation that I was serving at the time would come. And then, you know, I put it out on Twitter and thought, well, if, you know, a couple people want to show up, uh, that's great, you know. But I wasn't expecting to have like a crowd or regulars. And it turned out actually that it had far more participants than I ever would have thought. And people who were consistent about it, who continued to come week after week. It was popular enough, in fact, that I had multiple requests for another series. Uh, the initial one was, I think, six weeks long. And uh, people were excited enough about the way that we were reading Tolkien and the kinds of things that we were doing in the lecture series that I put together five more weeks where we looked at uh, other themes in Tolkien, things like race and uh, ecology and Tolkien's view of war and, and some of the other pieces of, of Tolkien's world that you can read from, a, I think, a profitably from a, from a progressive point of view. So I was, I was pretty thrilled with the, uh, the response to it. Uh, and the other piece of it was that, uh, yeah, I mean, you get backlash from these things, but... You know, smash that block button, right? Like at a certain, there, there's a certain kind of critique that is in good faith and that you can actually engage with and like have a generative conversation. Mm -hmm. As anybody who spends time on uh, on Twitter.com knows full well, right? 
But there's also, and this is, I think, unfortunately, more common in these kinds of conversations. It's people who, they're not there to learn. They're not there to have a conversation. They're not there to try to actually, like, understand where you're coming from. They just want to explain to you why uh, why you're wrong, why the text has only one possible meaning, and it just so happens to be exactly what they think it means. Yeah. Um, yeah, totally. That's always extremely frustrating. Um, so I, I guess maybe before... Um, we, you you can like dive into some you know main points or something that you want to share. Um, why do you think it's important for us to talk about um, Lord of the Rings and Tolkien in the you know in these ways where it's like I have you know there's not just one way to read it you know why is it important to talk about it and especially from the um, viewpoint that you covered in your series. So we're in an historical moment where a couple of really important things are happening. Uh, one of them is that we're in the middle of a pretty pretty brutal culture war, right? There's mm-hmm. this, as, as we, we look around us and, and the trends that have began, you know, over the last 10 years or so of this backlash to progress, of this backlash to queerness, of this backlash to movement forward on, on racial justice and on ecological justice and on economic justice is uh, really rough. Right, we're 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 facing a United States in which uh, many states are freed up to pass draconian laws against LGBTQ people, in which uh, you know uh, folks are losing their reproductive rights at the federal level, and this plays out in the realm of culture, in the realm of fandom, in the realm of the media we consume. I mean, whether it's Star Wars or the Lord of the Rings or video games or you know, take your pick of your favorite, uh, the favorite you know media you consume. You're gonna find these exact same same kinds of fights breaking out. The idea mm-hmm. that oh well, we're importing politics into it because we're talking about queer people, right? The idea yeah. that, that queerness is inherently political and also inherently sexual, right? That like you just get politics out of my games as if your games starring you know straight white men shooting at things didn't have politics in them, right? Yeah. Um, so, so we're so we're looking at a, a media and a cultural landscape in which these divisions and in which these kind of reactions, these reactionary responses to both real and hoped for movement toward progress and toward justice, is really virulent. And I think the proper response, in 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 my opinion, is to to, to get queerer. Right. To, to, to do more of it. Right. Like don't back down, claim the things yeah. you love, uh, enjoy the things you like and have have the tools uh, to, you know, to justify not that you need to justify liking anything, not that, you know, you need to justify doing your 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 gay Sam Frodo fan art or whatever. Like, I don't I don't think you need some sort of ideological or theological justification for that. But I think defending the ground that that the stories we tell are important and that people should have the right to interpret them in ways that are meaningful to them because i think one of the one of the underlying problems with this culture war is that we're wait we're fighting uphill against the idea that that humans can only live one way right that there's only one way to be properly human and that any way that diverges from that idealized norm, so 
uh, any any racial way, any gender, any sexual way, any um, ab ability or body type way, any appearance way. So any way that diverges from this norm is is less than, and and you should aspire to this one monolithic version of what it means to be human. And I think that's really uh, damaging. It's damaging at our institutional level. It's damaging at our uh, at our you know cultural level and it's damaging i think in in the fandoms we occupy and in the just in the the social media and the literal social spaces we were in so i want to fiercely defend people's right to to make meaning the way they need to make meaning right and to to find themselves in the stories they love and to um, be able to 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 use those stories as as sources of of, of hope and, and as sources of identification and as sources of of belonging, right? Uh, to belong in uh, in a story and to belong in in the fandom or the community that forms around those stories. And I think that's that's true, not only of uh, of of the media properties we happen to enjoy, right? It's not it's not true only of the like media commodities we consume. I mean, this I believe the same thing about the Bible or about whatever book you may. Uh, find sacred, right? Whatever story you might or or tradition you might find sacred, as I, my sense of 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 Christianity or my you know why I'm in it is because I believe that it's it's about all encompassing like transformative love that that invites people in rather than shuts people out, and I I I will. There are parts of the Bible that are really difficult. There are parts of the Bible that do would appear to try to shut people out. That would appear to you know, segregate people on based on gender, based on race, based on background. And I want to argue from, from that perspective that, well, the thrust is toward inclusion, the thrust is toward liberation, the thrust is toward transformation, and that we can still love these stories even as we acknowledge difficult parts of them and we can push back against those who would claim that the, the, the rotten parts are the most important parts, right? Mm -hmm. So that that's true for me of Tolkien. It's true for me of the Bible. It's true for me of insert story here. Right. So that's that's one of the big reasons, uh, perhaps the biggest one, why why I think holding this kind of interpretive space is important. Um, the other one is just that we live in a time when uh, fewer and fewer people are identifying as religious. Right. I mean, in America, a recent uh, uh, study found that less than 50% of people, fewer than 50% of people are active churchgoers or mm -hmm. synagogue goers or mosque goers or temple goers, right? That, But people still have some sense of spiritual longing. They still have some sense of believing in something bigger than themselves and wanting community and wanting to find ways to connect to others, particularly in this atomized age when so much of our interaction comes through through the screens that we look at and through these like really toxic cultural narratives. We're all we're all looking for ways to connect with other people and to find community. And I think that, you know, I don't think a lot of people are necessarily going to look at the Silmarillion or the Lord of the Rings and say, "Oh, I believe in the Valar." That's going to be my religious belief, right? Yeah. Um, there, there are there are a handful of people out there, but with all due respect, weirdos. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they're finding meaning the way they need to find meaning for them, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna yeah. rain on their parade. That's not where I'm at. Uh, but but most people don't don't look at it that way. Most people look at it as this fictional story, but that's really meaningful to them. And I think that. I think that it's important to be able to like 
yeah, to, to, to read stories, to open up interpretations, and to recognize that just because you read Sam and Frodo as a really close platonic male friendship doesn't mean that I can't read them as a uh, queer romance, or for that matter, that I couldn't read them one or the like, that I could read them both ways and find meaning in both of those. Um, I just think it's, stories matter a lot. They, they, they form who we are as people. They help us set our priorities for the kind of world we want to live in. And I would like more stories and more opportunity for people to connect with others and not less. Wonderful. I feel like I should do a round of applause or something. Um, this is where I like I need a soundboard. Yeah, maybe you can um, share like what would be what was like your kicking off point for for discussion when you're doing this series or what was kind of like your your opening uh, opening statement or I feel like I'm now at a debate or something, but that's not what this is. Totally. Well, when I think we when reading Tolkien, I think two things are really important to understand. One of them is how how we read text. So how do we like encounter a text and like make meaning with it, right? Uh, and then the other thing that's important to consider is context. So so for me, I, I began the series talking about the way that any story, whether it's a Bible story or the Lord of the Rings or a Marvel movie or, or what have you, that, that there necessarily is, a, I believe, and, and Tolkien believed this actually too, that, that, that stories are these beautiful things that don't didactically tell you what they're about, right? They're not, they don't, if they just said, oh, well, the Lord of the Rings is about hope, for instance, or the Lord of the Rings is a, is a Christian allegory, you know, you could have statements like that, or you could explain them in, in these kind of didactic, or like you could write an essay about it, but that's not the same as reading the Lord of the Rings, when you read it, you have this experience of it that because of all that you bring to it, because of your background, your literary tastes, your assumptions, where you are in your life when you're reading it, whether you've read it before and this is your second reading or your you know, 30th reading. So all of that comes into the process of, of reading a story, right? That, that all of us are bringing with us a whole host of assumptions and life experiences and, uh, and, and ideologies and religious beliefs or lack thereof, and that that's going to inform the kinds of things we, we find in texts. And talking about that, I think, is an important place to start because it recognizes exactly what we've been talking about, is that there are, there's always multiple meanings. Stories very rarely are so closed, so closed off that you can only get one possible meaning out of them. And that that was really important to Tolkien. I mean, in the in the prologue to The Lord of the Rings and throughout his letters, he's really clear that when people try to reduce his writing to uh, to being an allegory of the H-bomb or being about World War One or about World War Two, he really hated that sort of thing. He believed that stories were these powerful packets of meaning that, that worked on us in ways that weren't entirely rational and that no mere allegorical or analytical explanation could ever capture. So, so that was one of the places that I really wanted to set us up in, in launching into the series. And I did that looking at um, a particularly through the lens of biblical interpretation, where there are these kind of competing schools of like, is the Bible uh, is the Bible one thing divinely inspired, infallible, right? That's kind of one particular school of looking at the Bible. And 
if you believe that, then you believe that the no word of it can possibly be wrong, that the world of the text, uh, the ancient Mediterranean world with all its patriarchy and being okay with slavery and, um, and inequality uh, is, is forever ordained by God, right? Is, is forever uh, the model for how human societies should work. Um, you, you tend to both uh, sort of put on a pedestal the ancient world, which may have had a lot of inequalities in it, and you also then imp- you take you the, all those assumptions that you bring to the text, and you, whether through active delusion or just a kind of self-delusion, you say, well, that's what it actually means. That's the only meaning of the text. That's exactly what it meant back then, and meaning is static throughout time. You kind of erase the fact that, well, if you believe that Jesus is the, uh, you know, the, the literal, uh, physical, uh, you know, incarnate son of God, true God from true God, true light from true light, begotten, not made, yada, 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 you're saying that's what the, te- the only thing the text can possibly mean. And I would argue, well, that's not actually the case. You're bringing 2,000 years of interpretation to it. Um, I'm not, I don't want to make this a, li- uh, a religion lecture, so I'm not, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but just so that you get an idea of kind of yeah. the, the, the way I'm thinking about reading texts. And I think that's a valuable, valuable uh, way to think about reading Tolkien, which, again, not a religious text per se, but the kinds of arguments people get into about it, you'd almost think it was, right? Um it certainly seems to be really important to people. And I think when we care about stories a lot, mm. when they mean something personal to us, when they, they've changed who we are or influence who we are, we can get really protective over them. Yes, um, yeah. And we want those stories to reflect our view of the world because when we read them, we feel like, oh, this inspires me to become a particular kind of person. This inspires me to, uh, to believe a certain set of things or to act a certain kind of way in the world. And the mistake is when we say, well, because th- this is what inspires me and it, because this is my understanding of the text, it must be that same way for everybody else. Yeah. In, in my experience with talking with people, that's how people who have, I'm, I'm trying not to generalize here with this conversation, but people who are pretty much only used to seeing themselves in um, media, there's backlash when all of a sudden it's not about them anymore because they've never had to contemplate this idea that like, Maybe there are other people, unlike me, people who have different walks of life and different experiences who also enjoy this work. And maybe it's their turn, I guess, I don't know, to see themselves reflected in that. Um, I don't know if that made any sense from the rambling of my brain. but um. <laughs> it, it absolutely did to me. And I think that's really important because... When, for instance, a heterosexual male reader, and I don't mean to keep harping on Sam and Frodo, but it's kind of the most obvious uh, place to go with a queer reading of, of Tolkien in some right, important yeah. ways. Although, as, as, as we'll find out as we continue down the Silmarillion, uh, Beleg and Turin is another great one. Um, Ooh, interesting. Uh, uh, yeah, they're, they're <laughs> besties tight. Um, anyway, so, but with Sam and Frodo, for instance, if you're, if you're a heterosexual man who ex- doesn't experience attraction or has never had the experience of being attracted to somebody of the same gender as you, then you can read it pretty uncomplicatedly as just a really devoted friendship, right? Um, and I don't think that the text, because the text doesn't give us, um, you know, there's, the, the, Tolkien is fairly devoid of sex, um, you know, and there's, there's some reasons for that, including him being a Roman Catholic in the mid-20th century. And also, 
the a lot of times the text is very void of emotions like like i remember there's um one scene with um faramir and denethor when i was first reading it and there are no descriptors of like how faramir is reacting or what he's feeling or what he's thinking at the time and so i interpreted it it to be that oh this is something that he's hears all the time and so he's used to it and it doesn't bother him anymore so then watching the movie where you do see those emotions and you do see those reactions i was like oh that's a totally like he's very sad and this is making me sad so um there there's definitely i think with lord of the rings because he doesn't always include tons of um descriptors um about people's reactions or emotions or thoughts usually you know it's just whatever frodo is thinking um and usually that's just like he's depressed about the ring. <laughs> there, there's a lot of room for interpretation. There's a lot of room for people to use their own imaginations and fill in those blanks. Exactly. Some might call it a weakness of Tolkien's writing that he isn't typically super emotionally effusive. You don't necessarily know exactly what's going on in his characters' heads. But I think, like you say, that actually opens up space for for the reader to be like, well... What must be going on inside Faramir at that moment? Or what must Eowyn be feeling? Or, you know, what what is actually the emotional content of, of, a, of a relationship like Sam and Frodo? So if you're a hetero dude and you read that, you're like, okay, they're, they're platonic besties. If you're a queer person, on the other hand, and you have the experience of being attracted to somebody of the same gender or attracted in a way that your society doesn't really have space for, and that is the kind of thing you might not be able to say aloud because of internalized or externalized homophobia or queerphobia, if you know what it's like to... To, to long to, to be to be committed to somebody in this way, then you read Sam and Frodo and you see you're attuned to different details. You're attuned to the number of times that they like lay in each other's arms or, mm-hmm. or, or kiss one another's brow yeah. or the the actual verbal expressions of love that they give. Um, or the fact that in the unpublished epilogue to The Lord of the Rings, uh, Sam's daughter Eleanor refers to Frodo as uh, Sam's quote unquote treasure. And specifically by way of comparison with Celeborn and Galadriel, who are, of course, a married couple. Oh, um, I didn't know about this unpublished. Ep- where, where, where can I find this? <laughs> Doing like uh, frantic Google searching. I'll, I'll send you the PDF. You can, oh if, my you ser- gosh, if you search that's crazy. Lord of the Rings epilogue PDF on Google, you can probably find it. Uh, it's in the it's in the book Sauron Defeated, which is uh, one of the History of Middle Earth books. Um, it's beautiful. It's it's absolutely gorgeous. Um, it's you understand why Tolkien didn't include it because Man, of the narrative I've, arc of the. Every book. day I just learned there's just more pieces of Tolkien out there. There's so <laughs> much. I even of it. realize there's so much of it. I'm doing a PhD in this, and uh, I I'll never be able to read it all. Never. Yeah. Um, so so what I'm saying then is that okay, well you if you're a queer person, you're attuned to those things in a different way, right? And you look at it and you say, oh well. Even though they never have sex on screen, as it were. This is clearly a queer relationship, right? Or you're able to see your own experience reflected in that in a different way. And I think that's beautiful, right? And I think I think not only is that... I don't think that's importing yourself into the text. I think... Or of course, it's reading your own experience in the text. But I think if you actually look at what's there in the story, you're like, oh, yeah, no, that... 
if that's going to be your framework, there's a lot of textual evidence. And so this, this to me is, so these reading strategies, right? We all bring these different interpretive lenses. So if, if, if you're a queer person or you're open to queerness in media and you read The Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit or The Silmarillion, you know, you start to see, oh, well, you know, Bilbo is kind of queer coded, right? You know, he's, Tolkien actually tried to marry off Bilbo in early drafts of The Lord of the Rings, uh, but couldn't couldn't wrap his head around the idea of Bilbo being married. It, it just oh, it, it made that. no sense at all. So instead, he's your rich gay uncle, right? With his yes. rooms full of brightly colored clothes and his quirkiness and his perpetual bachelordom. Or for that matter, just particularly, I mean, I think Tolkien is really is really good with like tenderness in male relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you see this in how often men in Tolkien will be deeply, deeply uh, committed to to their male comrades or to, to male friends, the kinds of emotional vulnerability and literal physical vulnerability. There's kissing, there's holding, there's there's caressing. There is a, there's a real sense that um, in a way that is pretty unheard of, certainly in Western mm. culture between men, right? I mean, when 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 hetero dudes read, you know, say, well, uh, you know, Sam and Frodo can't be gay; they're just they're just really close, you know, they're just really close platonic friends. And it's like, so do you cuddle with your platonic friends? Like, do you make a <laughs> habit of that, Western cis hetero guy? Because um, that was not something uh, that, that that was current in my world of cis guys. Um, I didn't. I didn't see any boys like cuddling with one another. If they were, maybe we'd all be a little bit healthier, right? If we had a little bit more, if we had right. a, a broader idea of what masculinity is, um, and and made more sense, space for these kinds of sensitive things. And that I think is is one of the other big ways that Tolkien queers, right? That the Tolkien's world is queer is that it it troubles or it it complicates or it opens up these vistas of 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 gender particularly that don't actually neatly fold out into the standard kind of uh masculine and feminine i mean to a point right like talking definitely his female characters he has relatively few of them and can certainly fulfill pretty stereotypical you know feminine quote unquote mm-hmm. feminine coded roles in the text but when you dig into a character like galadriel or eowyn or luthien uh as you are going to run into her in the silmarillion um or you and particularly in the in the you know the the emotionally open and uh, positive masculine roles like Aragorn or Sam and Frodo mm-hmm. or, or any number of others. You you see the ways in which Tolkien is queering masculinity, is queering femininity, is opening up space for expressions of love and commitment and tenderness and relationship that are closed off. Um, certainly, were closed off in his day. Uh, you know, the the graphic novelist uh, Molly Ostertag wrote a great article last summer. I was summer. just waiting for her name to come into this conversation. <laughs> yeah, I was I was lucky to be one of the the um, uh, sort of beta readers on that article. Um, and but I, I mean, I think it's one of the best things that's been written about queerness yeah. in Lord of the Rings. Quite, I mean, from 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 a straight up like scholarly perspective, it's a beautiful popular piece of Tolkien mm-hmm. scholarship. In addition to being a gorgeous yes. essay. Um, Listeners, I will leave this link in the episode description if you have not read this um, essay that Molly Knox Ostertag wrote. Um, and yeah, it's really, it's really, yeah, it's just really great to, to read and to hear how much the story meant to her from this perspective, from this, spe- 
what am I trying to from this specific perspective um and and sharing that and seeing like this is how a lot of other people also view this work and that's why it's important and that's why it's lasted all these years um I have a well first before I say this is that like I could easily do and I hope to do one day um, a whole episode just about um, representations of masculinity in this Um, not not even from the perspective of oh are they gay or are they not gay but just you know like Aragorn just being like one of the healthiest uh, depictions of masculinity and the fact that he's also one of the you know like top heroes that a lot of, you know, quote unquote, dude bros probably would be like, yeah, Aragorn's really cool. But also he is very like kind hearted and uh, he, yeah, has a lot of great values of friendship. And he is very like he thinks through everything. He's not even though he is does acts of violence. He's also like a man of peace. Anyway, um, all that being said, a comment or a question that I run into a lot um, in response to seeing these depictions of queer readings and queer characters is why can't we just have platonic relationships between two men? We never see those. Um, And I can tell you what my response is, is usually that well, within the within Lord of the Rings, there are tons of other platonic friendships that are represented. There's Aragorn with like the entire fellowship. There's Merry and Pippin. There's um, Legolas and Gimli. And of course, people can you know ship their own characters the way that they want to ship them. Listeners, you didn't see, but Tom ducked out from behind his microphone and raised his eyebrows at me when I said Gimli and Legolas. <laughs> um, uh, so what? So. It, it, so therefore, like, I think it's okay if people are saying Sam and Frodo are gay because there are still so many other positive representations of just platonic friendship within this series. What what is your what is your response when people say that? Because I do I do also think for the sake of breaking down toxic masculinity, I do also think it's extremely important to see just these platonic instances of of guys hugging and, and crying in front of each other without it having to be interpreted as as gay. Absolutely. That I mean, that was how I interpreted all the male relationships in, in The Lord of the Rings uh, in, until actually fairly recently. And this is where I come back to this thing about texts have multiple meanings and they can have the same reader can find multiple meanings in them. So the answer is, it, how does it harm you, right? How does it harm you if I want to read these characters as gay, for instance? You can still read them as platonic. The text supports that reading, right? The text, mm-hmm. if you want it to, can support either reading, right? Or, well... Sam's bi, right? You know. He's yes. Oh my clearly. gosh. Yes. Um. <laughs> I love saying. Oh my god. I love just reminding people that Sam canonically lived with his wife and his bro Frodo. Like he could not fathom the idea of living not without Frodo, and so Frodo asked them to move in together. Like he, they <laughs> are like canonically a a thruple. until Frodo leaves or something. So just like, oh my gosh, yes, our bisexual short king. (laughs) Our mid-century, you know, uh, uh, English Catholic author modeling a uh, healthy uh, polyamorous uh, community or relationship under one roof. (laughs) Anyway, 
But my point is that you can read them that way. It's okay to read them that way. It's beautiful to read them that way. Uh, it's there are plenty of beautiful relationships that are that are clearly non-romantic in Tolkien between members of the same gender, between members of different genders. Um, and then also there are plenty of, uh, well, this is the thing is that I think that why can't we just have, for instance, Sam and Frodo be uh, a, a really strong platonic uh, bond speaks to how impoverished our narrative culture is, right? Where we can't think of other examples of like, or we can think of relatively few examples or perhaps that's not off the top of our head of these like really tightly bonded emotionally and even physically vulnerable um, male relationships. Western culture is so starved for touch and starved for emotional intimacy that when we find one example of this, when we find one example of this in fiction, we cling to it because it's it's like, wow, I don't we, we don't have models for that. We don't have cultural narratives for that. Mm, yeah. Right. And so I can understand why that would be an important thing for somebody to cling to. No, they're platonic. It's. 100% non-romantic, and that's fine. That's a perfectly fine reading of it, and especially if, you know, I think there's a longing, right? This is this is me generalizing about, about men. Maybe maybe specifically, like, cis white men, because that's, that's where I'm standing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a longing for more emotional vulnerability with one another, like this deep, deep down thing that we actually want to be more fully integrated. We want to be positively masculine, but we don't have models for that. We don't have stories for that. And that that produce, I think that produces a lot of the the toxicity, that repression and that like not getting our, our, our actual needs for like platonic companionship met is part of the complex mm. of factors that produces toxic masculinity. Um, so, so in Tolkien, we see him constantly actually uh, providing alternative models, and I think that's really, really beautiful and really wonderful. Um, so, I mean, that that's that's sort of my convoluted response to yeah. to that. No, yeah, it's yeah, it's all just like a vicious cycle that kind of feeds into it, and yeah, people are. Um People want to view these characters as queer because that we have so few other representations in, you know, fantasy. Sure, you might have like nowadays they're actually luckily the um what's the the pirate show that everyone's addicted to our flag means death like that's great and like the reason it's done so well is because people are so um so desperate for these. Um, relationships and to see these people and qualities on you know in the media they consume and so the fact that like people want to view Sam and Frodo as this way is because they don't have it to turn to anywhere else and that's a I I never considered that that's also true for the the platonic relationships that there are so few that like this should be when people say that that should just be a reason to 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 root for pieces of media that you know, other to to see those in other pieces of media to root for um, better quality writing and characters, and not just like endless, you know, Mad Max and Top Gun and everything else. So I, I want to wrap up our conversation with this this final question: um, How can we, as Tolkien fans and readers, shift our viewpoints to consider these other perspectives of these works? How? can people who so f- for example i am a straight 
white woman. Um, I I think I've done a pretty good job of educating myself to you know, understand all these different interpretations. But um, there are definitely times where I come across fan art and I'm like, oh, I had like I, I had no idea that I could like imagine this person as being a person of color. Like that's really interesting. Um, so that's just a, a small example. But how what is something that you would advise to people or some tips or I don't know, something that you would say, these are some, here's how you can, you know, maybe shift your perspective a bit to, to consider other people's perspectives when, when talking about Tolkien. Boy, if I knew how to do that. I know, right? (laughs) That's a loaded question. (laughs) But it's a good one, I think. And you know, your point about encountering a piece of fan art, for instance, and thinking, oh, I hadn't really wow, I hadn't actually considered what it might be like to have uh, an all-POC like lead cast of The Lord of the Rings, for instance, right? And that's a good example because Tolkien has some icky racialization stuff, yeah. right? Like, it, it, I, yes. it does nobody any good to deny that that's there, right? And we can say Tolkien is a product of his era, and we can also show that he got better about it as his life went on, and that his views about these things changed, particularly as a result of World War II and, and mm-hmm. the Nazis and their appropriation of a lot of this sort of Nordic or Norse uh, imagery. But the fact remains that it's there, and, and we, have to, we have to acknowledge that, right? But I think exposure to these different ways of seeing and interpreting the text is is a good thing you know uh diverse talking is a great resource um uh, finding people if you're a talking fan like i am on social media like seeking out actively seeking out these different kinds of interpretations uh different kinds of, of fan art uh, if you're a if you're a fanfic reader you know looking for these different kinds of things i think is 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 worthwhile my sense of Middle Earth has been blown apart by by encountering this you know you know gay talking Twitter right has been blown apart by opening out into these other realms of interpretation that that hadn't really even occurred to me before. I think actively seeking out diversity of opinion, diversity of interpretation is a good thing. I think also practicing a bit of humility, that is easier said than done. But mm. the acknowledgement, I think it's important for us all to remember at all times, my way of seeing the world is not the only way of seeing the world. And to not just look for more diverse versions of, of Tolkien, but also to be open to you know diverse stories from other places, right? We do actually have fantasy authors of color, brilliant ones. We have brilliant queer fantasy authors. We have people who come from these backgrounds telling these stories and to make more space for them in the cultural discourse to find ways to get them the kinds of resources they need and to be able to disseminate these kinds of stories is important. Uh, You know, having the kinds of social and economic guarantees that would enable people to be able to have time to tell their stories and share those with the world. I mean, how do we how do we go about uh, opening space for more interpretations of, of Tolkien or of anything uh, is to, uh, I think, fundamentally to practice some humility about about our view of the world is is to acknowledge that we're never going to be able to see it all that there will always be other ways of reading a text, of seeing a character, of making meaning with a world, and that that's good, actually. 
my my spouse is Jewish, and in the Jewish tradition, there's this idea that Torah has has seventy faces, uh, and what that means is that that it has there are multiple interpretations that are possible. Some of them apparently mutually exclusive, and until you admit that all of them are valid interpretations, right? Until you've actually explored all of those interpretations, you haven't actually uh, found the true meaning. Because the true meaning is in wrestling with it. The true meaning is in figure, finding people to, to argue about it with in a productive way. Finding people to challenge your way of seeing yourself and to inspire you with, with their view of the world. Which might be really different from yours, but to me, that's a really exciting possibility. And so I would hope, my hope in, in doing this series and in, in being part of Tolkien fandom is, is to open up more space for that kind of thing to, and to um, do a better job of, of letting there be multiple voices and, and multiple perspectives. I was just sitting here thinking like, man, if only I could sit and sit, sit down with like every person who has a different life experience with me and just talk to them and just hear like, what like what what's up with you you know and just to get but just yeah that that idea of yeah practicing humility and I think I think also for me it's been um a, a lot of admitting when you don't know things and seeking out um how to you know seeking out sources or people to follow or people to learn from or listen from um I'm really trying to to listen more and you know learn more from people and I just I just wish I had like the time and the brain that I had when I was back in college because like I I loved learn I didn't realize it whoops I didn't realize it then but like I loved learning things and so um I just I, I wish I was back then that makes me sound like I'm ancient when I only graduated college like five years ago so <laughs> But like, it's been a hell of a five years for all of us, MC. This is true. This is true. I've yeah. I feel like at least two of those years count double. Well, Tom, thank you. Where can people find you on the internet, and what would you like to share with the audience? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at real Tom Emmanuel. That's where I post mostly about the Lord of the Rings. That's where if you want to follow up on on my graduate studies in Tolkien, or occasionally get news about my two adorable children. Uh, that, that's the place to find me. Uh, and I, I have nothing else to plug except just to say that uh, I'm, I'm enjoying the podcast and I'm looking forward to when your brain is a little less broken and you can keep going through the slog that is the Silmarillion. Yes, we will, listeners, we will return back to the Silmarillion next week. I think I'm going to have to be a nerd at the beach this weekend because I, um, I'm leaving for the beach tomorrow as we're recording this. I'm reading for the beach tomorrow morning and then I get back Monday afternoon and then Monday evening I have a recording scheduled. So I'm going to be out there on the beach, I guess, just reading the old Silm. <laughs> Hopefully it's better than the previous week. Um, I've been... I've been told that that's just the worst chapter and everyone's like, it's okay. Like, it gets better in the second half and we're sort of in the second half of the Silmarillion now. So fingers crossed. I don't know. 
That's what I'm talking about as a proud member of WBNE. If you want to learn more about the network, you can go to WBNE.org. The cover is by Vaishan Brandon. If you want to support him, you can do so by following him on Instagram at Vaishan Designs, where you can also DM him if you would like some graphic design work done. You can get merch for That's What I'm Talking About by going to tpublic.com slash user slash pod. I have one or two ideas brewing for some new merch, but unfortunately my life is too busy for me to work on that at the moment. So if you have any requests or ideas for merch, please feel free to tag me on social media. Look at these segues. You can follow the podcast on social media at Tolkien About Pod. So if you are on Twitter, if you're on Instagram, send a, a message, send a tweet, you know, something and let me know what kind of merch you want. You can follow me on Twitter at MC WhatsApp and on Instagram at MC Turndown for What. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash pod. You can become a sponsor of the podcast like Danny. Danny, thank you so much for your continued support of the podcast. I think if I remember correctly, you were one of my first patrons. So it's just really wonderful that you are still around here with us as uh, we are all losing our minds with the Silmarillion. As always, if you like what you're listening to, please make sure to rate and review. It's been a while since there's been a new review left on Apple Podcasts. So if you have five minutes, you know, maybe you're someone who scrolls the phone while you sit on the toilet, feel free to write me a review. And um, I would also prefer if it was a nice review and not, you know, a one star review. I like to read nice things about myself. Thank you again for coming on and and sharing and discussing all of this um, with me and and sharing it with the audience. Do you have any parting words? Keep reading, keep queering, keep being fabulous all. Happy, happy Pride Month. May it be full of joy. And that's what I'm talking about. (laughs) 